Well, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Um, Acts chapter 17. Uh, since it's our anniversary, our anniversary Sunday, I'm just deviating from our normal uh, series. So we're going to be looking at um, one particular passage and thinking about the impact of uh, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. And for that, I want to read uh, the first nine verses of Acts 17 and then uh, the first ten verses of First Thessalonians. And uh, so Acts 19, then First Thessalonians chapter 1. Sorry, Acts 17. Did I say 19? (laughs) Acts 17. Um, And before I do that, let me just uh, give me a... a, a, Let's pray, and then I'll say a few words to begin with, and then we'll we'll read the passage. Um, Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sustaining us, and uh, thank you that your word is faithful to us, and uh, you've been faithful through your word to us, and we ask that you... We'd open it up to us, encourage us by it, as we study it and think about it together, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know, it's always a, with a degree of wonder and amazement that I come to this point in the year, and um, to think that we're still here, <laughs> and uh, if you know anything of the story, and maybe you've been part of it, some of you, uh, you'll know that there have been periods where we've felt that we wouldn't make it, um, I remember... Uh, in the early days, uh, when Dr. Lutz, Albert Lutz and his wife Julie came to Solihull in 2005, uh, the summer of 2005, and uh, started this work from nothing, um, doc, uh, and Dr. Lutz reminded me of this a couple of weeks ago, so uh, he's been in touch with me about this, congratulating us on our 18th anniversary. He, um, and uh, he's still going strong. Uh, he's in his 80s and uh, still with his tract in his pocket, handing out to people. Uh, amazing guy. Um, and I was, you know, I was privileged to follow him in 2007, uh, March 2007. And, but I do remember there were, in those early days, uh, there were uh, a horizon, if you like, for survival was probably only a couple of weeks. Uh, because we thought, this is just not going to fly. There were, that first summer in 2007, uh, I think we... We had a small number of people, about 15 people at the beginning of the year, and uh, by the summer we were down to 10, and three of them were dancers um, who had just joined uh, the work. And uh, that was potentially quite discouraging. Uh, but from then on, God was uh, gracious to us, and uh, in ones and twos he added to our number step by step. And um, so if, after a while we stopped saying, give, you know, we, we'll give it another fortnight. <laughs> see how it goes um, but I couldn't imagine at that time that we could still be here after 18 years and so this morning's a, a good opportunity uh, for me to try and convey something what it is we've been trying to do here uh, in Solihull and for that I want us to turn to this passage in Acts chapter 17 and, uh, and here we find Paul on his second missionary journey um, so he's already had a missionary journey where he went to you know, Turkey, uh, central Turkey, Cyprus and then Turkey, and then back to Jerusalem. And then the second journey, he's gone back through Turkey, revisiting the, the churches that he had planted in the first journey, and then moving on from there westwards uh, across to the Aegean Sea, crossing over um, uh, to, uh, into Europe, uh, what we call, now call Europe, and uh, eventually ending up in 
Thessalonica. And uh, uh, this was in response, of course, to the Macedonian call that he had received in uh, Acts 16, verse 9. And he had no contacts, no friends, and so he starts ministry in Thessalonica. And uh, uh, chapter 17, verse 1 says this. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews uh, were jealous, and taking some wicked men uh, of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the, the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then turning over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writing later, not long after us, I think, uh, he says this, uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church in the Thessalonians, of the, of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and the labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the words of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned from God, uh, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, I want you to uh, notice something that's happened in the city. Turning back to Acts, thinking mostly about Acts uh, 17, we'll refer briefly to a verse in 1 Thessalonians. But um, as you turn back to that, notice something that happened in the city. Uh, in verses 5 and 6, uh, the apostles, we were told that um, the Jews... 
the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jacob, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason before, and brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And it's important to notice here that the gospel uh, not only turns Thessalonica upside down, But it seems to have turned the world upside down. The news was getting out that the world had been changed by this gospel, that uh, something was happening. And uh, and the question is, is what what has actually caused this? What's caused the world to be turned upside down? And the answer to that is the preaching of the gospel. And the preaching of the good news. I mean, it's such a simple thing. The preaching of the good news. And that's what I want to think with you about this morning. The preaching of the good news and how it changes lives. And how it transforms people. How we do it. And so, we see this riot happening in Thessalonica. And the simple reason for it is that Paul was faithful in preaching the gospel. And the preaching was so faithful that, as it were, the the tables of their lives have been turned upside down. Everything was thrown up in the air for them. And some people thought that was a great thing as they became Christians. And some uh, obviously thought that was a terrible thing. But, uh, you know, as you read on into chapter 19, you see that the effect of the gospel was to affect the, the trade that was going on in the city, particularly trade in idols and you know, various religious artifacts and so on. Uh, but you see, the gospel actually changes how people behave uh, in very practical ways. And so life was being turned upside down in all kinds of unexpected ways. And their lives were never the same again. So you have this... And the the gospel causes this division from people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and come to love him and people who actually hate what's going on. This is the effect of the gospel. And uh, we're going to say more about that later. But as you you think about that, what's your reaction to that passage? That thought that the gospel could turn the world upside down. If you're a believer today, I wonder if you'll think to yourself, and I hope you do think to yourself, if only God could come and turn the world upside down through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, that God would open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out his blessing. That men and women's eyes would be opened to see the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And be extraordinarily blessed. You know, we live in a day today when we, the church seems to be in decline. The, the only news that the people have about the church today is either it's numerical decline or some scandal in the church or something. And it seems like it's a dreadful thing that's happening to us. The church is just constantly in decline. And maybe you might hear a note that the only signs of growth in the church in the United Kingdom are amongst the Pentecostals. And the charismatics. And actually also amongst conservative evangelical reformed churches like ours. 
But that doesn't make waves in the news. But doesn't it make your heart burn to think that it could be that God would come in great power and bring such a reviving power and such an effect on people's lives and even communities' lives that everybody feels that life has been turned upside down? Does your heart burn? If it doesn't, I I don't know what's wrong with you. (laughs) Come before God, confess your sin. Repent. It should burn. Oh, that God would come amongst us and see us changed and our cities, our town changed. Well, this is what I want to speak to you about this morning. What, What was it that Paul did? Let's just examine what did he do. Secondly, why did so many believe? And then thirdly, why were so many people fiercely opposed to the gospel? What, what did Paul do? And the, the simple thing to say is, he used his Bible. As it, such as it was in the first century, he used the scriptures, the scrolls. He went to the synagogue and he opened the scrolls and he explained what was in the scrolls. And, and this is found here in 17 verses 1 and 2. When they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He used the Scriptures. Notice that this is saying his source material is what is written down. Uh, the Scriptures. He reasoned from the scriptures. So he doesn't come with a new philosophy. He doesn't come with his own wisdom or some strange vision or experience. He comes as someone who teaches the Old Testament. He come, I mean, that's interesting in itself. He preaches the gospel from the Old Testament. And as he does so, he, you know, he's, he's doing work. He's working hard at expounding what is present in the text of, of Scripture. And so in preaching, what he does is he, he reasons with them. That's there in verse 2. As he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Not just, he doesn't pre- preach in such a way to arouse the emotions. Or how to feel good about yourself. Or, you know, give a motivational talk. Uh, and... Nor does he uh, impress upon people uh, according to their will. So he's not just appealing to their their heart, emotions, or or to the will and trying to kind of force people into certain kinds of action. What he starts with is getting people thinking. He reasons with them. And he starts there. And that just tells you something. The gospel's got to make sense. Some Christians don't seem to know how the gospel makes sense because they don't think about it enough. But look at those words that he uses. Verse 3, he talks about explaining. Explaining the scriptures. Opening up the meaning of the scriptures. Demonstrating. Bringing all the pieces of evidence together to make sense and point towards a conclusion. Demonstrating. And then, preaching and proclaiming. Speaking with authority. Not his authority, but the authority 
of somebody who has been set apart as a herald of the gospel. Somebody who stands on the authority of somebody greater. Who's that greater person? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has sent him out. And he speaks knowing that he has that authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim the truth. And not just discussing, not just having a conversation, but declaring, even commanding. You know, this call to believe is actually a command of God. Repent and believe. Both commands. And God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. And so we go out into the world to call people to repent and believe. We're not just inviting them. We can make it feel nicer. But we're telling people, commanding people, and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, come and believe. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a... This is the, all of this spells out the kind of basic function of preaching ministry. Uh, explaining, demonstrating, proclaiming. And it gives the church, and particularly its ministers, its basic, basic method. Uh, this is what we're supposed to be doing in preaching. Um, you start with the Bible and you reason with people towards a conclusion to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You make the case for him. And... Uh, And then you wait and see what happens. <laughs> we'll come to that in a second. But this is what we're doing. We're making the case for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, people often argue that Christians are irrational in their belief. You know, when you come into this, this building, you leave your brain at the door and you stop thinking. Uh, that's what some people think. That's what people used to say to me as a student when I was at, uh, at university. They would say, you take your brain to your lectures, but you leave them behind when you go to church. And... Uh, it was gratuitously, gratuitously offensive, uh, but we had to live with that as part of being a Christian, isn't it? People think you're irrational. But here's the thing. Uh, to make a rational argument, you need, to, you need two things. You need, first of all, somewhere to stand. You, every single argument in life, no matter what your background, you have to have a set of presuppositions, a set of starting assumptions about the way the world is. You cannot start from absolutely nothing. You've got to start from a set of assumptions. And then the second thing you need is a way of making progress from those assumptions to the conclusion. So logic. And yes, Christians use logic. And we do so with the fire of the Holy Spirit. But we use logic. We use our rational minds. Now the big big debate and Uh, things that people can't understand is why are we starting with God first? That's our starting assumption. God exists. God is real. God speaks. God reveals himself. And therefore we need to reason from that starting point. From the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the saviour and we use logic like everybody else. We explain and try and proclaim what he said. That's why we put so much emphasis on the Bible uh, in the ministry. And uh, I trust all of our churches in the denomination do the same and many other churches besides outside of our denomination who put the emphasis on the Bible and teaching the Bible. Uh, this is a, a fundamental teaching position of any uh, 
gospel preaching church. And, and the thing is that many churches, many members of churches want less preaching. It's a sad fact of life today that many Christians want less teaching and it actually betrays a, a loss of confidence in the scriptures, amongst other things. But once you do that, once you have lost confidence in the scriptures, you basically have no basis for arguing anything. Your presuppositions have disappeared. And you're just in a vague fog of spiritualness. And it's a strange thing. And so, as I think about that, is it any surprise that so few people in churches who call themselves Christians know what they actually believe? Um, I remember once when I was um, beginning to train for the ministry, I was, um, for a few weeks I was uh, attached to an Anglican church in the, the neighboring village where we lived in Derbyshire. And, uh, um, and it was twinned with you know, the parish church in my, my village. And you know, the, the vicar there was a strong evangelical. He was a, quiet, he was a closet Presbyterian, actually. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, that's another story. But um, I remember once, you know, I was, when I was doing this um, placement, I went to visit some few, a few folks that were part of this church. And I, I visited an old gentleman um, by the name of Jack. Jack was a person that everybody knew in the village. Uh, Susan nodding, she knows who I mean. And um, at that time, he was in his 80s. Uh, he, he organized the, the annual village carnival, and he was a fixture in the village. And uh, he used to run this, um, you know, the bric-a-brac uh, auction. You know, a bric-a-brac auction, people would bring all the rubbish from the house and <laughs> it raises money for charity. And, uh, you know, if, if, if a thing didn't sell, Jack was very good at uh, lumping it in with the next person. So if you wanted something, you had to take all the other things that hadn't sold. So there was always these things that came back every year that nobody wanted. <laughs> but kept, every year they kept raising money, like that old horrible lampstand that kept appearing every year. Uh, Jack was that interesting kind of character. Jack had gone to church since he was six years old. And he was in his 80s now. 80 years he had gone to that same church. And uh, I remember visiting him and began to talk to him about his Christian life. How, how did you become a Christian? And he didn't actually know how to answer that question. He said, I've always gone to church. And as we talked a bit more, I started talking about the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ coming, suffering and dying for sins and ra- being raised to life from the dead and... Uh, and if, as we believe in him, we can have our sins forgiven and uh, receive from him eternal life. And it's not dependent on our works. Uh, none of that uh, is, all that you've done in your life is irrelevant as long as you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and turn away from your sin. And he said to me, I've never heard any of that. Eighty years in church, he had never heard any of that. He had never heard the gospel. It's staggering to me. I don't know whether this man became a Christian in the end. He did seem a bit troubled that he'd never heard it. But what a tragedy that people can go to church for decades and never hear the gospel. Friends, we need to make sense of the Bible. We need to explain the Bible. We need to preach it, read it, study it, think about it. Um, 
preached that biblical message. So the message was biblical, that's the first thing. Second thing is, he preached Christ from the Bible. He preached Christ from the Bible. It's quite striking that uh, a man like Paul, uh, who was brought up as a Jew, trained as a Pharisee, and without doubt he excelled beyond his peers, uh, suddenly discovered that it only made sense when, when Christ appeared on, onto, the, uh, onto the stage of history. All his life, up to that point, he had thought he'd given himself to the law, he had rejected the claims of Christians. He was wanting to close down Christian believer, uh, uh, assemblies of Christian believers. Um, he was physical about it. He was carting them off to heaven, uh, to, to prison, not to, to prison. He was th- issuing murderous threats against Christians. And then suddenly Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, and he and Jesus Christ is the key unlocked the Old Testament for him. All the puzzles seemed to dissolve as he spent the next three years or so wrestling with what he thought he knew about the scriptures and reorientating everything he believed. And uh, he thought he knew about the Old Testament inside out. But uh, he suddenly found he had unlocked a treasure chest of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, it's kind of like having binoculars that are out of focus and then suddenly they come into focus. Suddenly everything's clear to him. And you can just imagine perhaps what was going through his mind. He thinks about all of those Old Testament passages that maybe speak about a Messiah coming, but he, hasn't quite, he doesn't expect him to come now, maybe at the end. And he thinks that somebody's coming and... And so he reads things like Psalm 22, you know, the great psalm about the death. Uh, David speaks about dying. Uh, or Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Or Zechariah chapter 3, about the Joshua standing in, uh, in the robes of righteousness and the angel of God uh, saying to any accuser, away with you. And all of these speaking about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly it comes into focus about which those prophets were speaking. That this Jesus was indeed the one who was in heaven, who came down to earth, took upon himself human flesh, lived a perfect life, suffered an unjust death, then gloriously on the third day rose again from the dead and now the whole world is called to believe in the one who has defeated death and through whom your sins can be forgiven. Friends, this is what we are called to do as a church, to preach the Lord Jesus Christ, to be faithful to all that God has told us in the scriptures, to preach Christ as the only saviour of the world, to call people to turn away from idols uh, and turn to Christ instead. So we preach Christ. So we preach the Bible and we preach Christ from the Bible. But here's, here's my next question, main question. Why did so many believe? Why did so many believe? Those three Sabbath days that Paul preached, why did so many believe? One of the temptations of outlining a method of simply preaching 
is to say, well, as long as we just do that, then won't everything else just follow? You know, like the vending machine. You put the money in and out comes the chocolate bar. Uh, if we just preach in this way, the world will be changed. Um, well, no, not, not quite so fast. Adopting Paul's method is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, uh, it reads this. And this is the kind of the background to Acts 17. He says in verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us. It came not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Paul clearly preached and reasoned uh, with his hearers from the scriptures. But something else is going on at the same time. It is that the Holy Spirit comes and brings conviction and acts in power and takes that word of God and does something amazing in the lives of those who are hearing and believing. And we don't have time to go into all of that. Indeed, we've dealt with it in previous weeks as we've thought about the Christian life. But let me say here that the work of the Holy Spirit is central to real change and real transformation. Without the Holy Spirit, there can be no change or transformation. You see, addressing people, uh, the intellect, with our powers of reasoning is not quite enough. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's our job, and we do it as best we can. But the Bible teaches us also that those who are hearers are, because of sin, are slaves to sin. And that even their minds are darkened. So simply explaining rationally the claims of the gospel is in itself not enough to overcome the sins of the human heart. What we need is something else. There needs to be a power that releases those people from their sin. That's why people sometimes have such striking conversion experiences. One minute somebody can be uh, unconvinced of the gospel, can't see it, no matter how you explain it, and then suddenly something happens, and as it were, a door is opened in their minds, as it were. And they suddenly see Jesus Christ in all his glory, rather akin to Paul seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus. Maybe not such a dramatic appearance, but there's something similar going on as people understand who Jesus is. And the Holy Spirit comes to move people from indifference and apathy to conviction. Where they become convinced of their sin. Sometimes, you know, people don't actually realize they're sinners. They need to be shown it by the power of the Holy Spirit and the opening up of the Word. And once they see it, then they begin to look for a a solution to that. And they see Jesus Christ. All of that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have something then to put your fix your eyes on and give you hope, Jesus Christ. So this reason that we need to pray constantly 
for the conversion of sinners. We need to long and pray for the work of the Spirit constantly. You are to pray, as Malachi tells us, uh, indicates to us, that the windows of heaven for us, uh, uh, that God would open the windows of heaven for us and pour down for us his blessing until there is no more need. Pour out your blessing, Lord. Pour out your blessing. Know that we would have that longing in our hearts for that blessing of the Lord. Oh, that people's lives would be turned upside down. One other question we have to deal with. Why are so many so fiercely opposed? This is our last point. Paul faced opposition and uh, in the end was obliged to leave Thessalonica. Uh, Why was that? Because for two reasons. One, the Jews were jealous. Uh, The Jews envied what was going on. They could see what was happening. Uh, Paul was being effective in his ministry. People were were joining Paul and Silas. and They were leaving what they knew before. And they were joining Paul and Silas. Joining the church. Becoming part of it. And as a result, perhaps, their their own numbers, the the Jews, their numbers were being depleted. And uh, their way of life was being disturbed. Their way of looking at scripture was being disturbed. There were religious and cultural non-negotiables for them that were being confronted by the gospel. They were jealous and they wanted it to stop. They wanted to preserve everything that they had already. They weren't open to newness. And then, that's the Jews, but then secondly, the Gentiles, who were in power, also felt threatened by the gospel. And so you notice the arguments that the mob uses to justify dragging Jason and his friends to the authorities in verse uh, 7. He says this, And Jason received them, and they all acted against, uh, uh, they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's no, another king, Jesus. You see, they were, uh, they were claiming that the Christians were setting up Jesus as an alternative emperor to Caesar, which is anathema to Roman rule. And so trying to create trouble for the Christians in the minds of the Gentile Romans. And so presenting Christianity as a threat, a political threat. What was going on here? Well, very simply, the gospel in its simplicity challenges people uh, in things that they look to for security and certainty in life. It confronts idols the idols of your life, the idols of the culture. Um, the gospel changes your attitude to all of those things. And it's a real confrontation. Because the immediate reaction is for the idols of the heart to begin to fight back. That you want to defend, if you're a, a non-believer, you want to defend everything you, you believe in. And I wonder how many of us who have been converted later in life, have had that experience of your life being turned completely upside down and everything about your life being reorientated and all the idols that you once followed before have gone. You have no desire for them anymore and you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a sense, everything has changed for you and it's maybe upset your family and maybe you're married to somebody who doesn't agree with you uh, or maybe your children or your your parents or whatever and uh, everybody's upset with you. For becoming a Christian. 
And all this turmoil comes because you become a Christian. Let's be clear. Becoming a Christian is not an easy thing. It's not just a simple life choice. You know, you choose this and I'll choose that um, as a Christian. Uh, It actually causes disruption to relationships and friendships. And you see, but the reason it's so important that you do that is because you see that Jesus Christ and the implications of the gospel, uh, there's nothing more important. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of everyone. Lord of everything. Lord of every power that be. Even the powers in London, Washington, Moscow, Beijing, whatever. Any human power, Jesus Christ is more important, more significant. And this Jesus Christ demands everything of me. You know, our government, any government, doesn't demand everything of you. It grants you freedom to do a great many things. Jesus Christ wants everything of you. And he wants you to give yourself to him. There are some things in life that are non-negotiable for those who oppose the gospel. Some people think they can pay lip service to God but maintain a particular lifestyle, a particular activity, a secret desire of the heart, a relationship that God speaks against. And the thing is, if you're in that situation, you won't submit to anything that the Lord Jesus Christ tells you to do. And there is this inner fighting back all the time against the Lord Jesus Christ. But the fight simply demonstrates what the Bible says about people, that they're enslaved, that they need to be freed, that only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. And some of these Jews and Greeks did become Christians. And their lives were never the same again. By the grace of God, they came to faith in Christ. This is what happens by the grace of God. Your life is turned upside down. You're enabled to be free of all of those idols and turn once again to God. All the ways in which you are hopelessly entangled with your idols, you can turn to God. Friends, this is why we're here in Solihull. To seek to find ways to preach, to teach Uh, to explain about the Lord Jesus Christ, to win people to him. We long for God to come by spirit and in power and in conviction. I hope we do. When God does that, life will never be the same again. People become new in Christ. They receive new impulses, new desires. They're released from the, the bondage of idols that they had before. Their orientation is always towards the Lord Jesus Christ. They're always wanting to go towards him, to discover more of him, to find out more of him. Even though we sin and we fail and we find ourselves ashamed and embarrassed, we still know that to come to him is the best thing. So I wonder if there's anyone here today whose eyes are being opened. Don't hold back. Come to Jesus. He will receive you. You know, we've been here um, 18 years, as I said. Worship, not quite as a church. It took another year before the church was established. But from October 2005, 18 years ago, we started worship here. And in many ways, you know, after 18 years, I still think that we're at the beginning. And you may think that's a strange thing to say. 
Um, but I do remember 15 years ago, um, I went to a, a church planters conference um, and I remember listening to a minister who had been in the Free Church of Scotland for uh, over 20 years. And at that point, uh, he told the story of his, uh, his church, how he had uh, taken on as a revitalization project. There were literally four people in the church. And over the 20 years, um, the congregation had grown to 100. And uh, it was a great story. You know, 20 years though, <laughs> long time. It took 20 years to get to 100 people. And uh, I remember this, pre- this minister saying at this conference, he says, only now do I feel we can really just get started. <laughs> and uh, this is a church that's since grown to uh, about 300. Sends missionaries out, plants other churches. Amazing thing in, the, in Eastern, you know, in Fife. And an amazing story uh, of gospel growth all because of faithfulness to preaching the word week by week. And that church sang psalms, by the way. But, that's <laughs> but you know, you can faithfully preach the gospel. And wherever you sing, you sing to the glory of God. And people's lives are changed. Friends, we're at 18 years. I don't know what's going to happen in two years' time at 20. But maybe we'll just get started then. And maybe amazing things will happen after that. Who knows? God knows. But Lord, let's pray that God would work by his spirit and great power, enable us to preach the gospel faithfully, and we'll be here for another generation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the rich blessing of uh, your gospel. Thank you it's changed our lives. Uh, for many of us in this room, our lives have been turned upside down. We're never the same again. Thank you for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, for that he is the most blessed of friends. Uh, who loves us and cares for us and demonstrates his love for us in that he died for us. And we pray that you would uh, bless us as we go forward from here um, into the next uh, 18 years perhaps or 20. And uh, Lord, may you do great things amongst us. May we see people coming to faith in Christ. May we see people's lives being uh, upturned. We may also face opposition, but Father, we pray you grant us courage to face it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.